Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Black and Empowered Podcast. Y'all know I wouldn't be me without a little drama. We actually, that was just for nostalgia's sake, because we do have theme music uh, by way of our sound director. For those of you who have been here for the past two seasons, we're now on season three. Hopefully you have seen our growth. I am here today with what I consider a very special episode. So I just mentioned our early start, our origins of, you know, our intro just being me turning up and getting excited about all things Black excellence, Black resilience, Black thriving, despite the stressors that exist for us as Black people in today's society. Um, I really am excited to revisit this previous episode that I recorded in 2020, so three years ago, with the National Children's Alliance. I was very privileged at this early time in, um, I would say, the panini that's been going on for the past three years, right? So I was contacted by the National Children's Alliance just based on some work that I had done in child trauma and child resilience to have a conversation about trauma, about healing, and about just overcoming struggles, right? We can think about the pandemic. We're specifically interested in racial stress and trauma. Um, and both of those are things that I was able to touch on in this conversation. Three years later, I have engaged with the National Children's Alliance around their standards for accreditation and making sure that their standards are updated to reflect the requirements that we really do have for engaging minoritized and marginalized groups in evidence-based services and treatments. The National Children's Alliance is so special in that with those standards of accreditation, they work with children's advocacy centers to provide wraparound services and comprehensive care for kids and adolescents and teenagers who experience trauma, child abuse, neglect, and stressors that do include racism and racial stressors. So in addition to those standards for accreditation, I've done trainings across the National Children's Alliance to make sure that all the providers that are trained in trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the gold standard treatment for trauma, are also receiving this training in evidence-based practices for engaging Black youth and families, particularly in utilizing racial socialization to really bolster treatment effects. Um, and through that work, we haven't trained all of them, right? So there are nearly 3 million providers within the half a million children's advocacy centers um, or half a million children that have been served through about a thousand children's advocacy centers around our nation. So this is really important and exciting work that I've been um, able to continue engaging with, with the National Children's Alliance. And um, like I mentioned, almost a thousand, right, um, children advocacy centers that we're able to access and really train up these service providers. Um, 
So I am just really excited to introduce this episode. It is a throwback. It is a re-release. As I said, this episode first dropped in 2020. They, the National Children's Alliance, just re-released it in 2022. We wanted to, you know, repost and regenerate this conversation now that we started 2023, really to re-engage our audiences and to remind you all, right, if you are delivering trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, any form of CBT, if you're doing mental health practice, evidence-based mental health service delivery with Black youth and families, please, please, please reach out to us at the Empower Lab. I am owner of Cultural Concepts Consulting. I have been doing these trainings and workshops with clinicians, practitioners, staff, and even leadership at organizational levels. Please reach out. Um, you can reach out to the Empower Lab at gmail.com. You can reach me at Aisha Metzger at gsu.edu. All of our work is integrated. We are hoping to amplify both the research as well as the consulting work that we do as we are moving this platform forward. So that was a long-winded ramble. I'm trying to do a time check. I don't know how long I was just talking, but this was my long way of saying. Thank you to the National Children's Alliance for continuing to do this very, very, very important work for continuing to serve ethnically minoritized youth, particularly Black youth, and really for engaging me and allowing me to facilitate some of this, this conversation with you all. This has been an honor and a privilege, and I hope that you listeners are both informed and entertained by this conversation. We're going to take it away. <laughs> my students will tell you I'm horrible with goodbyes. I'm not even saying goodbye. I'm just talking to myself. Uh, but let's just take it away. That's why I have intro and outro music. I'm just going to do some drum roll. Let's go. This is One in Ten. I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host. Today's episode is the intersection between race and mental health care. Imagine for a moment that you're a clinician and the gold standard treatment isn't working well for your clients, Black kids and youth. What do you do? TFCBT, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, is the most common and effective treatment operating within children's advocacy centers. So when it's not working as well as you would hope, do you simply abandon the treatment? Or do you go on an exploration into the ways in which the messages within the treatment itself might challenge and be challenged by the messages about race and what it means to be Black in the larger culture and at home? Dr. Aisha Metzger, a professor at the University of Georgia and director of the Empower Lab did just that. She adapted this key treatment for Black families to make it even more effective while still being true to the model and science because she asked this critical question, is it Black kids and families that need a different approach or is it the treatment itself? How did you really come to this work? How did you become interested in the intersection and especially the research interest in the intersection between mental health and evidence-based treatments and race. 
So I am from Sierra Leone, West Africa. If you're familiar with Sierra Leone, there was a civil war that took place there. And I grew up in an environment where uh, there was a lot of interpersonal trauma. My family came over in the 80s. We were refugees from the Civil War at the time. So at one point, uh, there were 14 of us in, in my house at the same time, right? So this was an environment where we were, of course, watching news stories about situations that were still happening back home. We were doing fundraisers for family members who uh, weren't able to make it to the States. I was hearing personal accounts from my relatives who came over with us about this really traumatic, life-threatening experiences that they were going through. Mm -hmm. And also, um, so being West African, <laughs> when I first went to school, I was having problems code switching. I was having problems not only code switching, but really navigating a new culture, right? So in my household, we were very African all the time. I went um, to school in an affluent neighborhood. So I was bused from my neighborhood that was lower resource to this affluent neighborhood. So not only was I in a new culture, but I also was uh, an African booty scratcher, right? So I had experiences with discrimination, um, with my peers, with different teachers that I was working with. One day, my dad came up to the school when I, I made, I think, a 95 on an assignment, and he just could not understand how my teacher didn't know the standard of academic excellence that we had in our household and in our culture, right? So he's demanding, what happened to the other 5% of my daughter's grade? So after that experience, my dad, I think, became really intentional about having conversations with me about what it meant to be an African child growing up in America, what it meant to navigate educational environments, right? What it meant to hold on to my family's history and our background and use that to really prepare me for instances of discrimination that I would face or even systemic racism that exists. So early on, they put me in speech classes. If, we, if my dad wasn't involved, right, I would end up being on maybe a technical prep versus a college prep track. As my vocabulary built, as I started going to these psychology classes and realizing, right, oh, there are treatments that exist for trauma, but mm -hmm. they're developed for, tested on, outcomes are proven for white kids. I started looking into programs specific for Black kids. And then my question was, okay, so what about within group differences? My experiences as an African child were way different than those of my Black American counterparts, right? So just really trying to understand what about Black families and the conversations that we have. So I talked about the talk that my dad had with me, but this is really a series of conversations that as I started learning about risk factors and protective factors and what families do to protect their kids, I saw, oh, this is called socialization, right? So socialization is a process that we say, look both ways before you cross the street, don't touch the stove, it's hot. But also when it comes to racial socialization, Black families are having those conversations with their kids in terms of you have to work twice as hard in class to make the same grade that your white counterparts might make. If you get pulled over by the police, you put your hands at 10 and two, no sir, yes officer, that sort of conversation I started to understand was 
racial socialization, right? And the pride messages that we instill in our youth are a part of that conversation as well. I want to come back to that because I think that that's really yeah. critical. And something that's very distinguishing about your research is that you've really looked at that with evidence-based treatments. But I want to step back for a moment and talk about your clinical practice because I also think that one of the interesting things is that you've been a practicing clinician all along as you've been researching this. And so kids right. and families have been coming to you for help. And I'm wondering, what did you see in your own clinical practice, in addition to your own personal experience, sure, that sure. concerned you, piqued your interest, or maybe even surprised you a little bit? Early on in my clinical work, uh, what I found was that in group supervisions, the discussion was a lot different than the conversation that I was having with my clients in session. Those are conversations about access, mm. right, to services, mm. about mm. the content of services, about the way that services are delivered. So I would have families say, it's not that we're not engaged. It's not that we don't want to receive these, these treatments. It's that you don't have weekend hours, or it's that you don't offer childcare, or you don't have office hours after I get off of work. That's in terms of access. But if I talk to them about the actual content of the treatment that they were receiving, they would say, I don't see myself in this content. Mm. Or even before we're, we're diving into treatment, I don't know what your relationship is with DSS, right? Yeah. So you want me to come in here and talk to you about my, my practices as a parent or my experiences as a child. But if I tell you that my mom and dad spanked me, or if I as a parent tell you that I whooped my child, I don't know if you're going to report me to DSS, right? Mm. So just those conversations about cultural mistrust, for example, or about stigmas that they had. So what happens in the family stays in the family. Hearing those sorts of things from my clients is what um, really made me go back into group supervision and say, you know what? It's not that these families aren't engaged, right? It's not that um, they're going through a different process in their home. It's that we as clinicians and we as organizations need to really start thinking about how we can get them to trust us, how we can get them to have access to our services, the way we deliver our services and who deliver the services to us. You know, it's, it's really interesting because we know from the research that there are these racial and ethnic disparities and mental health treatment, right? And right. a lot of what you're unpacking, which I think is so helpful, are all the layers of that. So there's a layer of it that has to do with are there disparities and referral rates from the beginning, right? And then sure. there are these concrete barriers that you're talking about. Can I travel there? Are the times um, ones that are going to work for my family? Am I going to have to drive, you know, an hour across town to even get services that right. feel relevant to me? And then there's that piece of it that I really appreciate you talking about with family engagement, because I think sometimes when we talk about family engagement, it can sound like we're blaming the family. Like, you know, Absolutely. why are you not getting <laughs> these really important services? And you're pointing out that that may have a lot to do with trust, mm -hmm. right? But also the messages within the treatment itself. Sure. Can you talk about those messages? Because you were sort of getting into that earlier. And I don't, I, I think a lot of folks may not have heard the term racial socialization and kind of how that may intersect with messages within right. mental health treatment. Can you just kind of talk about that relationship and what those are? Yeah, yeah. So in mental health treatment, right, we talk about the cognitive behavioral triangle. We talk about the connection between what we think, 
how we feel and how we behave, but also how messages that we receive from society and in therapy can impact the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about others, our interactions in our day-to-day lives. So racial socialization is a process that takes that conversation of the cognitive behavioral triangle and thinking traps that we might fall into. So all of this language is a process that we can use as therapists to talk about racial socialization. So to say, the pride messages that you convey to your kids or that you as a kid convey to yourself through the role models that you select, the conversations that we have in therapy about, or as a family, right? about um, the strengths that you have as a Black person, historical traits that you have, contributions that other Black people have made in society. Those are going to directly combat messages that you're receiving from society, maybe even in your mainstream history books that then are going to allow when you are faced with um, an interpersonal stressor like childhood abuse, but also a racial stressor like being followed around a grocery store and treated suspiciously, you're going to have different messages. You're going to be able to change the way you think about yourself, change the way you think about how other people are perceiving you, but also racial socialization prepares you to cope with those experiences. So those are the messages that say, you know what, you do have power, you do have control, and you're able to go shop at a Black-owned store, for example. So I think that the messages that we receive are able to target our behaviors. So go out and vote as opposed to going out and drinking to cope with some of the messages that you're receiving. And this is in, in response to some systemic injustices that we might be seeing right now. But also in your day-to-day life, right, if you receive a direct message that you're less intelligent or less attractive or you speak well for a Black girl, right, um, you're able to have other messages that combat that that say, I know a ton of Black girls who speak well, right? So this isn't a reflection of me as a Black person. It's a reflection of you and maybe your understanding of Black people. So instead of internalizing that message and then becoming depressed, angry, hopeless, not trying for a job that you might get, now you are then empowered. Really just thinking about in treatment the way that instead of talking about the cognitive behavioral triangle, Um, very generally and using basic examples, like you walk into a cafeteria, people laugh, what do you do? You're able to use more concrete examples. So someone asks to touch your hair. Someone says you speak well for a black girl. Your teacher doesn't call on you after you've raised your hand five times in class. How do you then persist, right? How do you change Mm. your thoughts or how you feel in order to behave more adaptively? Well, you know, in some ways, what you're describing with racial socialization is a lot like you address cognitive distortions in therapy, right? It's about saying that message you've been hearing in your head is the wrong message, and there's a different way to interpret that um, right. and that thing that's happened to you. And it also seems to me that a lot of what you're talking about is really survival, both emotionally and you know, mentally and spiritually and all of those things, right? You know, that Mm -hmm. the reason, and physically, you know, the reason kids are getting the talk, which is one version of, or one example of racial socialization is, you know, their parents want to keep them safe. They love them and they want them to be safe, right? And so I can see how these powerful messages about how to be strong and resilient and exist in the face of adversity, you know, those also have an impact and they are carried into a treatment environment. Well, every environment, right? But also a treatment environment. Yeah. 
I always talk to my clients about uh, racial socialization as a, a kind of two-step process. And I say two, it's really five, but the simplify will say two, right? Yeah. So if we think about survival as the racial barrier messages that parents convey, right? So this is what you're likely to face, and this is how you overcome them. On the other side of that coin, we want to be sure that we can emphasize going from survival and surviving to thriving, yes. right? And those are really the racial pride messages and the mm. celebration of mm. what it means to be Black and to channel that power that you have. Because a lot of times, you just mentioned that with cognitive distortions, it's the messages that are going on in our head. Mm. Uh, what we know about the Black experiences in America is that society's messaging. Yeah, it's from the outside, right? Yeah. Right. So we do things to really encourage Black clients, especially, to focus on not only surviving, so doing PMR and taking your time to relax, right, and to uh, notice how you feel in your body, but also to take it a step further, right? So Mm -hmm. we know that we have that message that you have to work twice as hard to get ahead. We also need to remember that we are joyous people. We are spiritual people. We can celebrate. We can praise. We can laugh. We can dance. We can do all these other things that take us from, okay, I'm just bracing myself and preparing for these instances of discrimination. But no, no, no. Really tapping into being mindful, right? So I'm going to use some therapeutic words. Being mindful about the celebratory and the... experience, right, that you can have and the pride that you can take in what it means to be Black. And I think that that's when we start to get empowered. And that's when we start to see that, okay, not only am I going out to vote and not only am I protesting, but I'm writing this great song or Beyonce, I'm releasing Black is King, right? This is a celebration um, that I think, especially in therapy, right? So we're able to give assignments. I love to give assignments. Go find a Black role model. Go find a Black um, public figure that you can celebrate, that you can use to combat George Floyd's video that you're also Mm. having to see, Mm. right? So really just thinking about ways to use therapeutic strategies. So if we're giving a homework assignment, make it a homework assignment based in racial socialization. If we're doing in vivo activities or challenges to say face and approach these things that you might be avoiding. Yes, approach and raise your hand in class. Yes, approach your teacher after class Mm. to ask the question, but also approach and go vote, go call a senator, go Mm. sign a petition, go sing and dance in the streets with your family, go celebrate, right? And really go beyond what it means to just survive and really start thriving. And I think that that's been some of the best things that I've gotten out of therapy with my clients is really seeing them leave therapy and say, yeah, not only did I heal, but I just feel so much better about being oh, me yes. and being black. Yeah. Right. And I have, I have that pride. Yes. I know how to cope and yes, I know how to face these challenges that are surely going to come. But while I'm doing that, like I can sing and I can pray and I can celebrate and all of these experiences, right. Are, are building into my testimony. I'm saying testimony, but right in, in TSCBT, we talk about a trauma narrative, yes. right? So often I'm having to reconceptualize that even for my clients to say, you know, it's a trauma narrative, but it's your testimony, right? Mm. Like there's an outcome of this that makes you bigger, better, stronger, able to overcome whatever challenge you're, you're going to face in the future. So I think that's really important too. 
It's interesting because one of the roles that you're describing for yourself is a translational one, taking this evidence-based treatment and translating it in a way that it's going to be effective, you know, with your clients and families and that they can really genuinely understand and not feel that it excludes them, which I think is sometimes the way that some uh, treatments can feel to people who may, as you've said in some of your own writings, listen to the messages within them and feel like somehow that doesn't relate to me, or I'm not sure maybe, or I'm uncertain if it relates to me. Can you talk, because so many of our listeners really know TFCBT inside and out, and oh, great, um, great, great. can you talk just a little bit about, you know, an example of a message within TFCBT that you might need to translate, you were just describing that with the trauma narrative, but that you might need to adjust itself and also translate for Black families in order for it to seem relevant and feel like something that that resonates with someone. Yeah, I wish I had some listeners here that we could have, you know, call in and ask specific questions because yeah. literally I translate every single yeah. bit. Right, so from the assessment, we're doing an assessment of traumatic experiences. We're doing an assessment of PTSD. We're also doing an assessment of discriminatory experiences. And we're mm. also giving an assessment of racial trauma. When we come to psychoeducation and building rapport with our families, we're talking about your beliefs about and your understanding about traumatic experiences, but also your understanding about racial stress and trauma at every single stage. When we're talking about issues of confidentiality. We're talking about how do you view confidentiality as a Black client, as a mm. family? Does what happens in the family stay in the family? Do we go to God for consult or do we go to mental health professionals? And what experiences have you had with the system and how does that make you feel? And how can I help you overcome those and how can I make this a more trusting process? I'm Black, but I do supervision with a ton of white therapists and their main question is, how do I even approach the topic of race with a black client? Mm. So my answer is the exact same that I would give to an adult therapist who's now talking to a kid client. I'm the specialist in TFCBT. I'm not the specialist in your experience. Mm. I'm not the specialist in your life. I say I'm emerging in my understanding of cultural practices, right? Mm. I am developing my proficiency in working with ethnic minority families even as a Black clinician, right? I might say some things that I get wrong. You might say some things that I don't understand. When I talk to a kid client, I don't speak child language. So if we need to translate like you're saying, let's just make it an open environment where if you say thought, right? So my kid client said, oh, that girl was a thought. And that's why we got an argument. I had to say, hold on, let's talk about what a thought is, right? Mm. So if you say I had this experience when I was watching George Floyd's interaction and I don't under understand, I might say, could you slow down and talk to me about that? Let's dive into that for a second. So I think it's important at every stage to say, I'm an expert in TFCBT. I'm gaining emerging expertise, or I'm seeking consultation or continuing education in cultural sensitivity and humility in trauma treatment. However, I know that you are an expert in your experiences, right? I'm not going to assume that your family believes one thing. I'm not going to assume that you've had any particular experiences because we know that Black families have different experiences. Even within a family, individuals have different experiences. So literally at every stage, affect identification. Where do you feel anger in your body? 
we talk about it and we, we translate it and we make it more culturally relevant and specific. You really are talking about this cultural adaptation of TFCBT, right? Um, in the way for Black families that it's been done for and other cultural adaptations of that intervention. I'm wondering because, you know, in our own field, there have been some folks who, rather than worrying about a cultural adaptation, why don't we just say to families, whatever it is that you feel comfortable doing, that's what we'll do. And I'm wondering if you've heard any of that type of pushback to these types of cultural adaptations and sort of how do you respond to that, to the sense that, you know, people do sometimes feel initially alienated from these treatments or may feel at least uncertain about them, right? So why not just say, well, you know, it's fine. Whatever it is that you, you would like as a treatment, that's what we'll do. I would challenge those practitioners and just say, right, then why do we have an evidence base? So that is, in my opinion, um, taking the easy way out and saying, we're just going to go based on what feels good. So we have science and we have an evidence base because we know that there are certain mechanisms that we can help clients utilize, right, to overcome the challenges that they face. So to say, we're just going to let you feel good and do whatever you want is to say that uh, we're not going to utilize our expertise and what we know works. I think we need to challenge ourselves as practitioners and as scientists to take the evidence base that we know works and to see and make it relevant for families, how it can work for them. You know, we've been talking for a little while about um, racial trauma. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you feel like it might be helpful to really describe the breadth of what you mean when you're talking about that. Because I think sometimes when people think not so much about racial injustice, but about racism generally, they may have the impression that this is primarily an issue of hurt feelings. And that's not what we're describing here. You might have your feelings hurt, but that's not what the injury we're talking about. Can you talk about racial trauma a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So this is one of... One of my favorite conversations, especially with trauma therapists, because they already have the mindset of trauma and of PTSD. So I think that then the leap to racial trauma is one that is pretty linear. And if we think about interpersonal traumas on a spectrum, there are everyday common occurrences that we might face that stress us out, like an argument with a friend or a caregiver. If you move it further along on the spectrum, you can see that things can start to get more stressful and more impactful as the degree, the frequency, the intensity, and the threat increases, right? So the same exists for racial stressors. It's on the same spectrum from uh, everyday stress, a common occurrence, so that's a microaggression that you might experience, to more di direct instances where you are called a racial slur where you're left out of an activity because you're black or uh, ethnic minority, right? All the way up to um, if you think about someone being in an abusive home. So this is an unpredictable daily occurrence that you might start to experience that could lead to trauma. So this is someone who could work in a racist organization. This is someone who lives in um, an under-resourced neighborhood, right? So mm -hmm. we start to see some systemic um, issues of racism and how that impacts us on the, again, the spectrum of racial stress and how that can then lead to trauma. We also think about vicarious instances of traumatic experiences. So 
9-11, right? That's one big instance that led to communal trauma. If we think about instances of vicarious racial trauma, you can think about, I mean, so I said 9-11, George Floyd, Amon Arbery, right? Breonna Taylor. There are these large widespread national instances of collective trauma also that impact Black people on the individual level. So you can start to see then how interpersonal stressors can lead to interpersonal trauma. Also, racial stressors can lead to racial trauma. What we know about both of these is that uh, we as individuals have family members, we have friends, we have communities who can help us heal from and cope with these experiences. But in some cases of interpersonal stressors and of racial stressors, interventions are necessary to help combat some harmful thoughts, some inaccurate thoughts that are instilled in us based on our abusive or traumatic or stressful situations that are interpersonal or again, in this instance, racial. That is when therapy is needed. That is when you are able to, as a practitioner, use some of these strategies. So practice, right? We're able to use all of these strategies to combat the racial trauma as well. And so the symptoms of PTSD are exactly like the symptoms of racial trauma. So if you think about someone who is physically abused, who is now hypervigilant and on the lookout, right? Um, someone who experiences racial stressors constantly, unpredictably, uncontrollably because of the color of their skin. They also may be hypervigilant, right? So that's something that we as clinicians can help them with. Negative alterations to our cognitions and our thoughts, easy. The messages that you, you receive change the way you think about yourself. Therapy is a way to combat those messages using some of the strategies that I talked about. So all of the symptoms. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I was just thinking though about the image that you had with 9-11 and I think almost everybody can remember sort of if they were alive at the time, right? Where you were, when you saw the, and, and how transfixed people were and often watched those images over and over and over until finally the media stopped showing the buildings going down. So, you know, I was listening as you were listing the litany of people who've been killed um, as a result of racial injustice and racial violence. And I was thinking to have those repeated images in the same kinds of way and these, and these instances, if you think about the way we all changed as people based on one incident in you know, 2001, right. I, I'm just thinking about the additive uh, impact and burden right. for black families who are having, right. being just bombarded with and those images. So with, um, with these instances in particular, not only are we getting the images, but we're also, when you think about PTSD, what else do we get? We get triggers, right? Yes. So we get the reminders. And those reminders are the fact that the police officers still are not arrested, right? Mm. Those reminders are in conversations that you hear people having. Those reminders can lead to cognitive dissonance, those reminders can lead to ambivalence, those reminders can lead to helplessness, to anger, right? All of these outcomes that we see are not just a product of watching the actual murders, but they're also a product of all of the triggers that come with them, the constant reminders. Um, and then the constant reminders that you receive when you are reminded, oh, 
you're black too, right? So it can happen to you as well. If we can remember after 9-11, right, we all came together, we were one America, we were really empowered to bring unity back to America, to regain our identity as what strong Americans, right? So I think that um, when you think about that and you think about how we consciously sought to heal in that way through those messages, those are the sorts of messages that Black America needs to heal as well. Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. um, that's a reminder to society, but it's also a reminder to us. And I think that as much as we're able to repeat those messages with our clients, as much as we're able to combat those triggers, right? So telling our clients, you can unplug. You don't have to log on to social media. You don't have to engage in those conversations with your coworkers. You can set boundaries. So we talk about in enhancing safety, right? Creating a safety plan. What do you do the next time a Black person is murdered, <laughs> right? Mm. That's a safety plan that we have to come up with with our clients for racial stress and trauma. If you're going to a protest, Write down the number, not on your, in your cell phone, because you might lose that, on your person, on your skin. Write down the number to a Bell's bondman, your emergency contact, right? We're wearing face masks now for coronavirus, but previously we were wearing face masks for tear gas, right? And yes. for harmful yes. policing that could take place while you are protesting and fighting for a basic human right, while you are um, trying to restore your sense of identity and empower yourself to... We talk about behavioral activation, right? While you're out, just trying to empower yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you're also having to utilize a safety plan. When we think about, you know, what PTSD really is, it's, you know, sort of when your natural coping systems are overwhelmed by what's happened to you. And when I think about how overwhelming it must feel, right? Because there's always that next instance and, you know, I was struck on your social media even by some of the great infographics, by the way, about what people can do um, to address and cope with racial trauma. And they included some things that can be empowering. I just wonder, would you talk a little bit about how to address this racial trauma, which is just so real? We approach it the same way that we approach, again, basically any traumatic experience that uh, individuals are having problems coping with. So if there's anything that they're avoiding, we say approach. If there is um, any harmful thought, so a harmful thought is one that gives you what? A negative emotion, right? If there's an inaccurate thought that we're able to identify, we challenge those as well. Specific to behavioral activation, I can say we empower clients to face anything that is bringing them distress. So if you are upset over media attention that's being put on to uh, systemic injustices and police sanctioned violence against Black people, right? We'll say, okay, how can we empower you to combat that? That might be saying, first, you need to unplug. Second, you need to talk to your like-minded peers. Don't talk to the people who say, what about Black-on-Black -black crime, right? Talk to someone who says, that's actually not a real thing. Have a conversation with someone who is well-informed, inform yourself, and then 
utilize these behavioral activation strategies to one, empower you, but also work towards that change that you want to see. So voting is something that gets you out of the house. It's something that makes you feel good, but it's also something that hopefully elects officials who arrest people who do things that are potentially racially traumatic. And so for kids who, you know, they can't vote, um, but they can do other things. You know, what, what are you telling youth who come into your practice and are feeling so overwhelmed, I think, and distressed, not so much by the media attention, but because these things happen to them, to their family members, to people they care about, to people they can see who are just like them. How do you talk to them about what they can do in that way? I kind of want to challenge you because there's a lot that they can do. I've worked with youth who have organized community groups, who have started online petitions, who have held their own Black Lives Matter protests and their own walks. They are actually better at calling senators than we are. They create bots that text. They create bots that email. They, on their free time, will call a local official quicker than any old person I know, right? That's awesome. And they will, they will challenge them and say, listen, what are your plans, right? Um, yeah. They are at, I can give high school examples, but even middle schoolers are out right now. And they are saying, listen, if you're going to vote, I'm going to pass out water, right? I'm going to stand in line with you and talk to people and engage them on the issues. And those are ways that they are able to feel empowered, those are ways that they're able to, again, utilize their own passions, their own strengths, and the messages that they receive. So oftentimes I'll start by saying, okay, what's bothering you? And then saying, how can we combat that? Mm, mm, right? Mm. And what's bothering you? What's accurate about this statement? What's inaccurate about this statement? If it is something as direct and vicarious as the George Floyd video, right? I mm. did not want to see that. I avoided it at all costs just to protect myself. But I had the mm. client um, who was hooked up on some of the imagery and we had to go mm. through and break down the imagery, right? And mm. talk about the stance that the officer was taking. Why was his hands in his pockets? It's because he was nonchalant, right? Maybe it was because mm. he had no value for this life. And that's something that you're able to then, if you think about things like prolonged exposure, if you think about things like desensitization to some images, um, that's the process that we're able to walk through with your clients. So it's really a matter of just asking them, what's bothering you and how can we challenge that? Some of these images, so Nick Cannon, um, Pop Smoke, I want to say, there have been some recent artists that we're able to then talk to the kids about and say, hey, watch this video instead, right? They have some of the same imagery, but they flip mm. it to be something that's empowering and the message behind it is empowering as well. So just giving um, kids access to, again, all my clients right now, if you know me, you know we're talking about Beyonce, we're talking about Black Esteem, right? Sure. Um, so it's just a matter of, one, finding out what's bothering them. Is it because you don't see Im any images of yourself in, in popular culture? I'll tell you where to go to find it, right? If it's because um, you're caught up on your hair, I'll tell you what book to read to combat that. So I think that for us as clinicians, a part of our job is to go back and to find those resources that we can use to help clients see themselves, to help clients change the way they think about themselves, and then to change the way that they even act in their communities. 
and that we know changes how we feel. And that's just a cycle that just leads to Black empowerment, to Black pride, to, again, not just coping, but really thriving. Thriving, yeah. This has so many levels to it. And the level we've been talking so far has really been predominantly around what can individual practitioners, individual clinicians, individual child abuse professionals do, which is really critical. But then there's also that question around the institutional level, right? Mm -hmm. And so first I want to ask you, what things should institutions, including children's advocacy centers, which I know you are very familiar with, what should they, first of all, stop doing today? Stop doing right now, (laughs) even as we speak. Absolutely, yeah. And you guys are like two months ahead of my publication that's about to come out that talks about this exact thing. Um, So I've actually talked to CAC MDT professionals, so the multidisciplinary team. I've talked to the Black families. I've I've done focus groups with the MDT professionals, but I've done a ton of key informant interviews with Black Mm -hmm. youth and caregivers. Really what they say about what the institution can do is to think about these issues of access, of content, and of delivery. So for access, it is Make sure that you're on the bus line. Make sure that you're providing Mm. transportation or tokens if necessary. Have a Wednesday night clinic or a Thursday night clinic. So if Mm. caregivers, right, um, need to come in after hours or on the weekends, now everyone's doing telehealth. So that really helps increase access. So really, as you say, what can we stop doing? Stop assuming that families aren't coming in because they're not engaged and they don't want the help. Start assuming that there are concrete, tangible things that you can do on the organizational, on the institutional level. Make it more clear and upfront your involvement with DSS, with the police, with the school system. Tell people how and why they were referred. Follow up with them, right? So very simple things that uh, we can do as clinicians, as frontline workers, as Even people at DSS, at DFACS, you are able to, when you're making a referral, right, tell the family that this is not a a process to penalize them, but this is a Mm -hmm. process that can give them tips and tools and strategies to build off what they're already doing. So it's not that you're doing anything wrong. We know we don't say, tell us why timeout isn't working for you and why you beat your kids, but we say, I'm just going to give you additional tools that might be Mm. more effective. Not that you're bad for beating your kids, because I get it, right? Why do Black families beat their kids? Because there was a time that if you didn't listen to what I say, you could die in these streets. And that time Mm. is also today. So to save your life, I can't talk to you gently. I have to, hey, this is a life and death situation, right? And that's the matter Mm. of parenting. That is to say, when an adult speaks to you, you respond respectfully. And we we have to raise our Black kids in different ways. So I think as institutions, if we are able to do simple things like have messaging around, right, that says we want to work with you as a family to do what you already do better, not to change anything that you do, to provide training and continuing education around issues of racial stress and trauma, to make sure that you have culturally competent clinicians to make sure that you have diverse clinicians. So cultural competence matters, but also making sure that there is some some form of representation, even if it's not the clinician that you're working with. What do the nurses look like at your CAC? What do forensic interviewers look like? What do the people in the front look like? 
What do the magazines look like? What does the artwork look like in your waiting room? Do families feel like they are welcome in this environment? So just thinking about um, tangible, concrete, small things that we can do is often what, again, families will tell you. I didn't feel welcome here because didn't nobody here look like me. It didn't have to be my therapist, mm -hmm. but anyone, right? Um, yes. I didn't feel welcome here because you told me I had to come between nine and two and I have two mm -hmm. jobs. I didn't feel welcome here because you said no children allowed and you didn't have, you know, a volunteer person to mm -hmm. stay in a room and play with my kids in the form of childcare while I'm working with my other kid who might need services. So I just listed off like 50, right? <laughs> no, it's great. It's tons. great. I can't wait to see the publication. I'm sorry I was two months ahead, but you know what? That's just a good excuse to have you come back at a, yes. for, for more conversation. Yes. You know, and then now to take it to the very next level, which is policymakers. You know, we all have to clean up our own house, right? So as institutions, we have to do that, but this, there's a system that we also have to impact. And wow. policymakers are a huge place to do that. So. Yeah. You know, if you had them right here, their ear, you know, and I'm sure you do on other podcast interviews and also on this one. So that's so great. What's your advice? Yeah. So the first thing that I'll say, and it, it kind of ties back into the question that you asked about um, existing evidence-based treatments, I would say direct funding, direct resources towards increasing the evidence base, towards studies that are going to show the underlying mechanisms Fund us, fund me, <laughs> right? That's great. Yes, we <laughs> also, all say that. I love right, that. fund public health messaging yes, yes. that are going to combat all this other messaging that we have on the educational level. Make sure that we have school counselors who are available. We don't need resource officers and police officers in schools. We need, mm. we need. <laughs> counselors, we need psychologists, we need even nurses that are trained in these issues and cultural competency. Making sure that, again, I talked about funding, so making sure that the NIH, making sure that we are electing officials who are not going to cut budgets across mental health funding and resources that are important to overcoming these issues and making sure that when we are delegating resources that they are distributed, not equally, but equitably, right? So if we know that the evidence base is already in existence for some of these uh, mainstream therapies, right? Putting funding and directing it and overcompensating for the lack of funding that has existed in mental health disparities research, for example. You know, we've got a lot of work to do. I gotta tell mm -hmm. you, it's good work. It's important work. I just see what a difference it can make. I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking if we can do those things. How many CACs are there right now? There's 800, 900. 900, yeah. We, 900. Need, we need that number to double, right? In the short term, we need that number to double. But then in the long term, we need that number to decrease because hopefully there'll be less of a need, right? So we need to eradicate um, yes. systemic racism. Uh, yes. anti-black racism but again right that's the larger issue but for now as these services are needed we need to equitably distribute the resources that are going into um, not only providing those services but solidifying the evidence base of those services and making sure that while we're doing that it's culturally competent and that um, the people who are doing that are diverse as well so it is like you're saying it is multi-layered and multi-pronged um, but there's enough of us, right? If we are all like-minded right. and we're all working towards the same 
direction, right? There are enough lanes on the highway. We just talked about individual practitioners, about families, about communities, about policymakers, about researchers, about teachers, right? So this work needs to be done um, on, on every level. So uh, one of the things that I do is while I'm talking to clinicians about how they can empower themselves and their colleagues, I'm also talking to them about how when you're working with the individual kid, don't think about them as just an individual kid, right? When you're talking about behavioral activation, give them strategies that they can then take into their community to engage other kids, to engage policymakers, to engage at these, these multiple levels. So, you know, I'm neither a clinician nor a researcher. So what sure. questions have I not asked you or given you an opportunity to talk about that you really care about and want our listeners to know about? I think the next important thing is that we're not clinicians. Some of us are researchers. Some of us are parents yet, right? We're all humans. And yes. I think that at the most basic level, we as humans can do better towards celebrating diversity. So I did, I said that there were two prongs and then I said that there were five. One of the other five prongs is egalitarian messages. And those are the messages that say, we are all equal. Right? Those are the messages that say, you look at a bag of M&Ms, why do some people prefer the red ones over the brown ones when they all are filled with chocolate? Yeah. <laughs> right? So that's, yeah. work, that's work that I think that we need to do on a societal level is to, one, not think that red is better than black or brown M&Ms, but to celebrate all of the M&Ms, right? And to not take a colorblind approach and say, we're going to have all red M&Ms now, but no, to say, the red one's special, and so is the blue one, and so is the peanut filled one, and oh my goodness, some of these have pretzels, right? And that's what makes, in this analogy that I just started for no reason, a candy bowl, right? That's what makes the candy bowl rich and great, is that there's variety and that there's diversity in the types of candy that's in there, although we're all candy, right? We're all great. What I really want to emphasize is that the most important step after we think about individual interventions, community-level interventions, and policy is that um, on a very basic human level, we can do personal work towards mm -hmm. diversifying our friends, diversifying our conversations, diversifying our experiences, and really celebrating each other in order to eradicate racism as a whole. That is what will put us in a much better place as a society. That's one where <laughs> I'm going back to Black as King, but this is one where we're able to, right, like, let me go to Lion King. I just can't wait to be king. You see the zebra and the elephants <laughs> and the tigers. Yeah. We all can celebrate in a huge, harmonious mm. celebration or experience. Life can be a melting pot that we like to think of America as, right? And it can be delicious. It could be celebratory. It could be fun if we really start to think about each other as the same, as equal, and we highlight and celebrate our differences. I want to just close with a question about your own research interest. What's exciting you these days? What's making you go, you know what, in the same way I looked into these other issues, I really am very curious about and want to know more about X. I love that question. So I think getting my PhD and getting licensed and really diving into my profession has taken me from a place to where I felt like I knew nothing about everything to where now I'm getting more narrow and I know a whole lot about very little. Um, I think what's exciting me 
most about my research is to now be able to start generalizing that to the broader community. So going beyond the clinical population and thinking about how we can, on a public health level, um, on a community psychology level, start to disseminate what we already know works for clinical populations to the community. So if we already know that Black families are engaging in racial socialization, if we already know that they're having to talk, how can we take these things that we're doing that have an evidence base with them for clinical populations and just giving them to all Black kids and all Black families and saying, hey, here's a talk, do it more often. Here's racial socialization, have fun, right? Um, and really thinking about how to, how to distribute, how to disseminate um, some of these messages and some of these programs to a community population. You just kind of previewed my next grant that I'm trying to, I'm trying to get, um, but we're doing- <laughs> Well, best of luck with it because once yeah. you have it and you're doing that work, we want you to come back. So yeah. I really enjoyed this conversation. I so appreciate the work you're doing in the community and also that because you're pairing that with research, all of us get to benefit from what you're finding in your practice. So yeah, thank that's, you. That's and the ultimate goal. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to One in 10. If you liked our podcast, recommend it to a friend or colleague and rate it on Apple Podcasts, which helps us build our listenership. For more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of children's advocacy centers, visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.